0: welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma.
1: What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a little thing like a brain tumor derail me.
0: When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired. I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being and in center. It's a Mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold and.
1: It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful.
0: Hey, everyone. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. Welcome back to the second part of my talk with poet, educator, creative, and free spirit, Tamara Madison.
1: And there is a
0: beautiful poem, perhaps it is my absolute favorite of hers, that is called Sequoia Sempervirens, which Tamara reads towards the end of this episode. This second part is shorter than the first, but I promise you will savor every word. There's a lot that I love about having the luxurious gift of going back to edit and re-listen to talks with friends. It's like reconnecting all over again. And in doing so this time... I recognized how luscious and rich and warm Tamara's voice is. It's so soothing. You should totally do voiceovers, Tamara. So I thought I'd share another update on my knee. And I promise I will do my best not to bore you (laughs) with these. But I'm now in physical therapy. And it was really interesting because the therapists were kind of upset that I was already there only like two and a half weeks out of my surgery. And they said that they normally don't start until around four to six weeks. So it kind of left me feeling like I was receiving bad medical care. But also at the same time, I just have this strong desire to get better. It's been like 10 months since I've been able to do anything. You know, you kind of need a need to move, right? And this past Tuesday was my second session. And they said they were going to put me on the stationary bike. That seemed way too early for me. But, you know, as soon as I sat down, I was like, oh my God, I miss this so much. And I wasn't able to do like a full revolution with the pedals, but I went from 50 to 60% range at the beginning of my session to about 85 to 90% range. So I was almost able to do a full revolution backward. Forward, it was a little bit harder, but that's not bad. You know, I really pushed myself and I, I'm i super proud of that. My third session was Thursday, I was hoping they were going to put me on the bike, which they did. And you know, it was really interesting. It's it's so weird how your mind works, like stuff just passes through there. And um I, you know, I always have a story associated with everything. And it's usually about these awesome people who are in my life. And this podcast is really nice because it is proof when you get to listen to my amazing friends that I do have amazing people in my life. And um, unfortunately, Ella Jean Bollinger, who popped into my head, passed away in May of 2014. So I'll never be able to bring her on here. But I can tell you about her. She is a former neighbor of mine, a former friend, badass diver, and she'll forever be an inspiration to me. She was the first black female dive instructor inducted into the Diving Hall of Fame in Hawaii. And interestingly, like you would have never known of this stuff about her, unless you were in the diving industry. I mean, like around here, she was just the nice lady who would go out and water her beautiful front yard garden. When the kids would go up at Halloween to knock on her door, she always forgot that it was Halloween. And so she would go running for her coin jar and just grab a big fat handful and throw it in the kids' bags like... (laughs) they just thought they were rich. I mean, she was a treasure diver. And so here she was giving treasure to the kids. You know, my kids just love that. That was their favorite door to go to. And, you know, she was just the person who would invite you into her house, she'd give you persimmons from her tree in the backyard and just want to find out how you were doing, you know, like it was never about her. And she would be gone for long periods of time because of her diving schedule. So it wasn't rare to like not see her for months. And I saw her husband one day. And I think it was like the middle of summer. And I was talking to him and I asked him where Ella Jean was diving at. And he said, Oh, she passed away in May. So it had been a couple of months and I didn't even know. And that's how, you know, like that's how humble she was. She was like 75 when she passed away and her husband was 71 and he was an underwater welder. These folks were diving and doing all of this crazy like superhero stuff in their 70s. I mean, like, that's who I want to be when I grow up. It's just it was really amazing. And she died because of cancer. I think everybody has been touched by cancer. And you know what, last week, I read that there's been some progress. There was a study that they did with a drug, I guess, that seems really promising. The cancer's not coming back So my fingers are triple and quadruple crossed because it's just such a terrible disease. But here's the thing. She excelled in an industry where she had like three strikes against her. She was black. She was a female. And she was like well into her 30s when she started diving. She was considered old. And this was a male-dominated sport. And she dove until she was... 75, right before she passed away, she went on to become the first black woman worldwide to become a scuba instructor and an international legend of diving. She became a specialist in training, co-authoring a book that was entitled When Women Dive, A Female's Guide to Diving and Snorkeling. And that sold out super quickly because at the time, this was a male dominated field. Everything was like she had to dive with these big, giant, heavy tanks that were designed for men and she wasn't a big lady so she and and one of her friends they wrote this book it became huge it inspired a lot of women to become divers and it also inspired the making of smaller tanks gear scuba diving suits and all of that sort of thing that were smaller and safer really for female divers and because they didn't anticipate the response they ended up selling the rights to that book for pennies, and it took them years to buy back the rights. It's a book that's still used today, and during her career, she was an instructor, and she also is credited with saving many men because, again, she was usually the only female on the crew and it was like in 2000 that she was inducted into the Women's Diver Hall of Fame. And I do remember seeing all of those scuba tanks and the equipment filling her garage. So she was diagnosed with bladder cancer and it was a really aggressive cancer. And at a certain point, she was forced to have her bladder removed And here's why she popped into my mind. I mean, like, you might be going like, Oh, my God, so what does all of this have to do with you getting on a stationary bicycle to rehab your knee? Right? Well, here's what it has to do with that. (laughs) I know I always have these long stories. She went back to diving after her bladder surgery, six weeks out. I mean, she was like, nothing's gonna stop me. And that's so inspiring to me. Um, So she she went back to diving and get this, she was 73 years old at that time. Uh, You know, so she had a really long, illustrious, wonderful career before all of this happened. And you know, it's very sad that she had to deal with this. But it just tells you how strong And not just the strength, you know, because I think a lot of times, you know, we're like, oh, just be strong, just, you know, get through this, but it was her passion for life. And that's so important to have that, like, I am dying to get back on a bicycle and not have to worry about my knee not carrying me. It's to me personally, when I run, when I ride a bike, when I'm hiking, when I'm snorkeling, whatever it is that I'm doing all this stuff that needs my knee. um, (laughs) It's exciting to me to be able to move my body to propel myself through the water or through the air, the feel of my muscles moving and that in itself, you know, just that energy that's needed to be expended and know, probably the endorphins and all that stuff coming in. But it's just such an amazing experience to me every single time that I just love it. Like, I don't want to be kept from that. And I also don't want to be kept from these amazing places that I go to, you know, when I hike, like, I'll go 20 miles to go somewhere that nobody else has ever been, or, you know, that very few people have ever been, and then I'll hike out the 20 miles. And it doesn't matter how high it is, or, you know, how hard that hike is, I'm going to do that. And I want to be able to do that. I've got a passion for that. And I think that it just inspires me even more to know that Ella Jean also (laughs) had that passion. And she is an inspiration to me because of that, you know, so hopefully I can inspire somebody else. But here's the thing. So she went back to diving and the cancer came back and it attacked her small intestine. And she was on a treasure dive in the Philippines she'd been hired she'd been recruited to do this dive so you know it became a tumor and it caused a small bowel obstruction and she went to see a doctor they did you know whatever type of imaging they had to do to see this tumor and they were like you need to go see your doctor ASAP like go you got to have surgery and she was like I've got three more days of diving and so she finished that dive. She did three days with the small bowel obstruction. And then she had the surgery and she waited three weeks and she was back out there. And I need to say this right here. I am not advocating for anybody to go against their doctor's orders. Talk to your doctor. Do what is best for you. Do not follow my plan. I am not telling you to do anything that you shouldn't be doing. I am just sharing my personal experience with my knee and my recovery and how Ella Jean inspired me. Because you do not want to do anything that's going to get you re-injured and set you back. Always, always, always do what the medical professionals tell you to do. Anyway, she was back to diving three weeks out from that second surgery. And unfortunately, the cancer came back, just started metastasizing, and she did pass away. But I'm going to tell you, she bowed out on her own terms. I mean, she took in and held on to every moment of life that gave her meaning and taking her time, leaving her mark. So anyway, she popped into my mind and check this out. Okay, after that long story, I was able to pedal fully to do these full revolutions with the pedals for 10 minutes straight. I mean, like I was not going to win a race I was going very slowly, did not build up a sweat at all. But I went for 10 minutes and I probably could have gone for 20. So I'm super excited about my recovery. And yeah. So anyway, let's get back to my In the Company of Friends talk that I had with Tamara Madison. It is really great. You're going to enjoy it. So grab a cuppa. Here we go. Few questions that I actually did want to ask. And, you know, when you were talking about rhyming and kind of having that, not necessarily a rhyme, but having a rhythm, and you put the articles in there and it gives it a different beat. And so you've got, you know, maybe a little bit of syncopation going there with the words. Have you ever put any of your poetry to rap or um, like a good rap song, you know, because I mean, that's so poetic, too. That's almost like music, musical lyrics are almost like modern day poetry. You know, some of them are really deep. Some of them are really, really, really good. And then you do have this proliferation of others that are just very superficial. Have you ever tried to put your poetry to music?
1: Well, I haven't. You know, on the subject of rap, when rap first came out, I I had a lot of hope for it. But I have not been that impressed with too much of the rap that I've heard. But I've never tried doing that. I have written a song, but it's not like one of my poems. It's more like a song. And I think, I guess my, my son put one of my poems to a song. And it was really nice that he gave it to me for Christmas one year. And yeah, uh, just singing it to me. Oh, how lovely! <laughs> he was very poor, at but it was really nice. And I don't think he remembers how it goes or anything, but it was nice. And somebody else put a different poem of mine to music. Yeah, it, it was okay. But it's a goal because now that I'm retired, I've resumed playing guitar again. And I do envision at some point getting comfortable enough to write some more songs. I'd like to do that.
0: Oh, I would love that. I would love that. I think you'd be really super good at it. And you just said something that made me think. Do you think that there is a clear distinction between song lyrics and poetry?
1: Yeah, I I really do. I mean, not always. I mean, Leonard Cohen was a poet and a songwriter. His songs always rhyme, and they always have a steady rhythm, and which I think is interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard of Joanna Newsom, but her songs are very um, literate, but they don't necessarily rhyme. They don't necessarily have a rhythm. She makes them work with the music by giving them extra time or whatever. You know, It's very interesting.
0: I'll have to listen to her. Yeah, I like that. Um, It just made me think of Tom Waits. Yeah. You know, he's Uh got a lot of what he writes. Uh, One of my favorite songs by him is Chocolate Jesus. I don't know
1: if you've heard I have heard of that. I've heard that song. Yeah, Chocolate Jesus. I like that. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's just a fun poem really and you know he's just talking about how he doesn't go to church but he goes and he gets this Chocolate Jesus at Rosalia's candy store every Sunday and if it's really hot outside and his Chocolate Jesus melts he can pour it over a nice parfait and yeah, there's like this juxtaposition between the nourishment of religion and the nourishment of Jesus in chocolate form. And it's it's just like, it's such a great song, but he is very poetic, definitely, mm-hmm. in, yeah. in what he writes. Yeah, I like Tom Waits. He's a lot of fun. So... Is there a process when you write? Um, earlier when we were talking about the place that dreams go to commiserate with each other for you know all the reasons that they didn't get to come true, you jotted down some notes. But are you writing your poems in one fell swoop? Are you thinking about them or do you just kind of find yourself like, Feverishly looking for a pencil and paper to write down your
1: idea and then it's done. Wow. Well, well, sometimes an idea will come to me. Usually it's at night when I'm getting ready for bed and I'll get an idea and I'll just jot the words down, but I don't bother to turn it into anything because it won't be any good. And I just, in the morning, I'll pick it up, what I wrote, I'll look at it and then maybe try to write a poem about it. But, you know, a poem is never. It never is perfect or seldom. I guess occasionally it might be perfect right immediately when it comes up, but that's pretty rare. Usually I'll do a lot of different rewrites and it'll sit on my desk for a long time sit on my desktop as well. And I like to have the paper copy too. It's just easier to really think about it than on the screen. Mm -hmm. it, It takes a long time for the most part. I always start out longhand and I'll It's difficult for me to write. Physically, it's difficult, longhand. So I'll write a draft that way, and then I'll move it into the computer right away. But I keep the initial paper because I need to refer to it sometimes. And I think it's a good idea to get your body involved. And so early on, I used to just compose everything on my computer, but I don't think that's really as good a way as to really get your heart involved in it by physically writing.
0: Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You know, I will write things out longhand sometimes when the idea strikes me, but my mistake is going back to reread it. And then I start thinking, oh, I could have used a better word or that's not exactly what I wanted to say. That's not conveying the idea exactly. And then I'm, now I'm scratching things out or I'm erasing or I'm finding a different color pen so that I can distinguish between.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't do it on paper that long. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And as soon as I start doing that, I'm in the office on the computer, just clacking away. I love the fact that you can type something up and just seamlessly go back and Mm -hmm. change it. And I, when I first started working, we had typewriters. And I remember that we had it must have been a brother typewriter. I was super excited about it, which, you know, makes me sound completely ancient. And um, I probably am to a lot of people. But.
1: Yeah, electric. You're talking to <laughs>
0: yeah, it was an electric typewriter and it had two ribbons. So it was black on top and red on the bottom. And, you know, you hit a key on the keyboard and it that dictated whether you were going to type in red or black. Mm-hmm. But then it had a whole other cartridge, this second ribbon, which was basically dry white out. Right. And if you made a mistake, you could go back and retype exactly the wrong mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now you could go back and retype over it. In, I mean, like it just took forever, but I just thought it was the greatest thing ever.
1: I was the master of that stuff. I worked as a secretary. I worked for a think tank when I was going to school in Washington, and um, we used to do like huge tables. It was a kind of modeling and stuff like that. So it'd be these huge tables, like on the ultra big paper. And somehow I learned how to like do it, just eyeballing it, how to make a table back before word processing. It was really not that hard once you got used to it. But then they'd send it to whoever was paying for it and they'd say, no, those numbers are all wrong. Change the numbers to this, this, is." Then I would get this thing back and I actually learned how to feed it into my IBM Selectric in the right way so that I could actually go back to that line and hit the backspace key and white it out. I don't know. I'm still amazed at myself that I could ever do that. Yeah. And then shortly, you know, after a few years, then word processing happened.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And that made it really easier, a lot easier. And I missed that. I missed making the tables that way and feeling brilliant.
0: Yeah. It's a much more creative process it's kind of like when i went from driving a stick shift to driving an automatic mm-hmm. and i didn't know what to do with my clutch foot and <laughs> my shifter hand mm-hmm. for a long time i just i felt mm-hmm. like something was missing and i wasn't doing enough
1: yeah, something was missing i love a stick shift mm-hmm. But I'm never probably ever going to have one again, and neither will you, probably.
0: Probably not. You know, they make them less and less, and every, everything is automatic.
1: Yeah, it, I'm on my second Prius, and it's the best car I've ever had. I love it. But I do miss my Mazda 626.
0: Mazda that. sixty-six
1: Stick shift. That was nice. Both my kids learned how to drive that. My daughter drives a stick shift
0: now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first car, (laughs) the first car that I bought, my uncle went with me and I had only driven automatics up to that point. And I kind of fell in love with this little red Pulsar with T-tops and it only came in stick shift and my uncle insisted that I should buy it. You know, if that's the car you want, that's the one that you should buy. And it's really, really easy. I'd never driven a stick shift and I put down money. I purchased it in Cerritos and I had to drive the jerky, dying drive out of the driveway. You know, it was just, um, I think I'd killed the engine about three times trying to get out of that dealership driveway. But by the time I got home, I knew how to drive that car.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that'll happen. Yeah. Is it? Was it Maya Angelou having to drive a stick shift when she was like eight or something in Mexico? That's a hairy story that she writes. What a story back when she was just a little kid.
0: Anyway. Yeah. I was wondering if you would mind, do you have a favorite poem?
1: Would you mind reading one? I wouldn't mind reading one. I don't have a favorite, though. Um, well, let's see. What is there one that you'd like me to read? I don't have a favorite.
0: Oh, I have so many favorites. I think that the first poem that I ever heard you read was the Sequoia
1: Sempervirens. Oh, Sempervirens from Wild Domestic. Yeah. Okay, and I'll read Sequoia Sempervirens now because it's summer and they're burning. It's awful. Sequoia Sempervirens. Some of these trees have been here since Jesus walked on water. Some of these trees have been here since Vikings drove their boats onto the shores of Newfoundland. Some of these trees were seedlings while the Mayans were worshipping time, while the dire wolf and saber-toothed tiger roamed North America. Some of these trees have survived lightning strikes and forest fires. Some of these trees house creatures of the forest floor in burned-out caves at the base of their ruddy trunks. Some of these trees have become living pipes, chimneys hollowed out by fire. They've grown beyond their trauma and focus now on the daily climb, the adding on of needle and bark, on nature's drive to rise above and see beyond until the day when death will fell them and the earth will add them to its riches. We can be like these trees. Pull on the layers of living like fine new garments. House the needy in the caverns of our grief. Grow beyond the stories of our scars. Stretch our branches toward the bristling stars. There was some rhyme in that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You feel yourself being part of that tree and that forest and the life you know, yeah, it's it's sad that a lot
1: of them are burning. Yeah, let's hope they won't all burn and they'll live to make more of themselves when it's safe.
0: Yeah, I just went two weekends ago, just before I had my surgery, to a Jurassic summer camp for adults. It was great. Whoa. <laughs> it was only thing is, it was really super hot. Um, but... While we sipped our wine, we took a tour through the Arboretum, and we stopped at the various trees and learned about where their beginnings were in the evolutionary process. It was really interesting. Um, I don't remember what the periods were, but A short million years before the dinosaurs arrived, Mm -hmm. the first conifers were growing on the earth. And during that talk, I found out that there are 12 remaining original of these conifers that start with a W. I forget what they're called, but I'll put it on the show notes They are from this period and they were found in the Blue Mountain forests of Australia. And I guess once it became like a protected park, the rangers were walking around inventory what was there and they came upon these trees and they were like, we've never seen these. And so they did the carbon dating and all of this stuff. And so when they had those fires in Australia, Mm. I think it might have been like, I think it was 2020, actually, because everything went to hell in 2020. And I think that's when those fires were raging there. They actually had protective fire retardant fabric that they wrapped around these trees. And they had like the hot shot firefighters that were out there watering these trees down while the rest of the forest burned down.
1: Yeah, I remember reading it.
0: If you had one thing to share with the world, what would it be?
1: Well, if I had hope, I'd share that with the world. A desire for hope. How's that?
0: A desire for hope.
1: No, I don't know. I do have hope. I have faith in something.
0: I think that life gets really, really crappy. And, you know, life is difficult. But then all of a sudden, it's like, really wonderful. So I think we have to go through our trials and have that hope that, you know, that faith that we know that it's actually going to be okay in the end. I think we lose hope because a lot of times we just don't want to go through the process, like the challenge is overwhelming, or, you know, just... Yeah. can't i just have a cake life from here on out i already dealt with too many challenges i don't want to deal with another one you
1: know well you know what? something i'm saying a lot lately too is that we're lucky we can still enjoy what there is to enjoy in the world we're not getting shot at we're not getting bombed we're not starving and i feel like as artists it's up to us to appreciate the things in the world that need to be appreciated and to share that appreciation with everyone. So uh, that's would probably be a better answer than my original answer about hope.
0: I like that. And the last one, cause I can hear puppy just dying to get out there is how can people find you your poetry, your books, your live readings?
1: Ah, Well, I have my my website, TamaraMadisonPoetry.com, has all of that. And gosh, I'm going to be reading somewhere soon, and I don't remember where or exactly when. But it will be when I get the information, it'll be on there, too. And I have an author page on Amazon. I've never looked at it, but I know it's there because I made it. And that's probably the best way.
0: Yeah. Well, I did look at your author page on Amazon because I got Wild Domestic and Marine from you directly at book readings, but I did get Along the Fault Line from Amazon, so it works and it's got everything on there and I will be posting a link to that. We covered so much in this episode, the inspiring and indefatigable spirit of Ella Jean Bollinger and of course, the ever-inspiring Tamara Madison. I hope that there was something in this episode for everyone, whether it's inspiration to push forward, inspiration to write, a reminder of what life was like before everything became automatic, or like Tamara said, to appreciate the things in the world that need to be appreciated She is always a poet and always an inspiration and so honest. As always, I'll post links in the show notes about everything that we talked about. Don't forget to send me your questions and suggestions. I read every one of them, even when I don't have the opportunity to respond to them all. Please be sure to rate this episode. It only takes seconds, but your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at The Queen Trow Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E Podcast. I am Syl Annan, The Queen Trow, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, inspiration, drive, appreciation, elegance, and beauty. I just think that nobody ever thinks that they're nearly as interesting as they are. You know, we all just kind of go along our lives doing what we do. And, you know, I wish I could write poetry like you do.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, there are people who think they're a whole lot more interesting than they are.
0: (laughs) That's the flip side, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For reference, this is me talking about all of my favorite poems by Tamara that I have marked. There's so many. I have hearts on a lot. I've got hearts on doors. I've got hearts on that midsummer. Oh democracy bar. That one's like really, really good. <laughs> Such a great diss. Um, what now is like I'm sitting here flipping through gimme your clouds. I like that one. Um I have a heart and an exclamation point on meal moths.